after extracting the toolkit, it was you know the the commands and the things that 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 you could do with the tool. You know, one of my one of my buddies at the time was able to go in and basically profile it and and reverse engineer it and tell us you know what you could do with the tool, and, and then it immediately became. Uh, evident to me that it was not this like you know exhaustive list of things that you could do like a universal sort of swiss army knife like toolkit it was very specialized and the code blocks in it had a different you know let, let's just say some of the keywords were, were foreign language and you know related and things like that and that really got me going um th- like that one incident which which you know lasted several weeks um but that one incident was what really you know, kind of got me really interested in doing threat intelligence and things like that. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll, like I said, I'll just I'll never forget it. So, I'm Steve Stonebreaker, and this is Ephemeral Security. Hello, Mike. Uh, Welcome to Ephemeral Security. Uh, Would you please state your name and what you do? Yeah, Mike Wyatt. I'm the Chief Security Officer here for Sideris. Awesome. And what does Sideris stand for? Cyber Defense and Response. So the Cy is cyber, and the D is defense, and the and the rest is response. So Sideris. I like that. That's a great name. (laughs) Thanks. So. And Sedaris does uh, what? Uh, so you know, think of it like uh, you know, just next generation MSSP, right? And we provide managed security services, and uh, the model typically is that somebody comes in and subscribes for you know a year-long subscription or multi-year subscription uh, to outsource various functions of their security program. Um, so I, I like to think of it as once somebody uh, partners with us, we are a giant extension of their team virtually overnight. Nice. When did you first use a computer? Whew, so that one's interesting. <clears throat> so uh, this goes all the way back to when I was three years old. Um, I don't know if you can remember um, Bubble Bobble, the game. I do. Uh, I have fond memories of that. <laughs> okay. So it's a you know, old 8-bit sort of uh, game. Uh, and this was back when, when we were using five and a quarter inch floppies. Uh, you know, I, I can remember this like it was yesterday. Um, my father actually owned <clears throat> a 486DX33. And it was this is so long ago when you had to have a math coprocessor, right? Gateway 2000. Um, and so <clears throat> I, I first started using the computer uh, when he, he had purchased the game for me and obviously, you know, uh, slid the disc in, went, you know, went into the DOS prompt and, and switched over to the disc and, and, and ran the, you know, the, the program. Um, every time I played it over, over the course of several weeks, I would memorize the, the keystrokes that he actually took. Um, and eventually I got scolded one time whenever I went in and I, I was able to open up the game by myself. I, you know, I remembered the image on the disc, I put it into the drive, I, you know, double clicked on this icon, et cetera. So that's, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a story. Like, I, like I said, I remember like it was yesterday, almost like I remember a, a cowboy boot that was underneath my bed at one point in time for some random reason. So 
That's great. So wait, you got scolded for going for going to the command prompt and, and, and executing an executable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, when when you're that young, it's like, no, you're you're not supposed to touch daddy's computer, right? Because um, oh, you know he was doing AutoCAD and stuff like that. And and by the way, it was unsupervised, right? So he would usually show me because because like I would sit there and pay really close attention. For some reason, I was really stuck on this game. I loved this game, and. <clears throat> um, you know, I, I would watch the steps that he would take, and one time he was actually, he, like, of course, my grandparents were at home, but he was gone. Um, I believe he was at work at the time, and I was able to go in and open it up. And, you know, they, you know, of course, they didn't think anything of it, but when he got home, I got scolded. And then from then on, it's always been a, well, I guess we should go ahead and support this guy's computer habit. <laughs> so, ah, anyway. that's great. <laughs> yeah. So, how did you get into information security? Um, I think. I want to say largely by accident. <clears throat> I think most folks, um, you know, like us, you know, we, we sort of become a security practitioner because we have this uh, driving sort of passion to, to look into these problems. Um, the, I, I can say that what really drove me initially was I used to be a, you know, workstation tech a long time ago, very beginning of my career when I was 16. Um, and at that point in time, I remember, you know, we'd get into the point where folks, would, you know, they'd bring into the, they'd bring their computers in to get them fixed, right? Whether we'd be swapping out components in a, like hardware components in a computer or, um, actually checking and fixing drivers or whatever in the operating system level. But then eventually I started getting really good at, um, eradicating viruses on the endpoint. Um, and of course, you know, from there it was just kind of like, you know, I don't know, it just sort of piqued my interest and, and I fell into, you know, doing networks and firewalls and all that kind of stuff. And it just kept growing from there. Right. So. Got it. So what are you doing in your, in your current role now? So today I lead a group of, uh, you know, folks that think, think of it like a, like, a, you know, I lead the blue team, right? We've got several socks that, that are around the world. Um, and then, of course, <clears throat> there's the threat management component. We, we call it special operations. Uh, this team actually goes in and they'll perform uh, digital forensics and incident response for our subscribers. Um, they also do some threat research, you know, like going out and looking at the emerging threats, performing outreach. Um, you know, then there might be some sensitive investigations and things like that. So just, you know, every everything that you could think of from a defender and, and from an investigator standpoint, I oversee today. So if a a customer, um, and I'm, I'm not saying that you have customers that, that were like this, but let's say there was a customer that was involved, um, sorry, that, that had Okta and they were part of um, the 300 whatever uh, companies that were flagged, right, um, by Okta um, for the for the lapses, which is something like that. Would you, in, that in that scenario, um, again, not saying that happened, would, would you, would, would your team assist with like looking through the Okta logs? to say, oh, this looks suspicious, that looks suspicious, that kind of thing? Yeah, for, for various threat campaigns. I mean, Okta obviously is one of them that you mentioned, but for the campaigns that pop up and, and are active and ongoing and things like that, we absolutely jump in and, and we try to provide proactive support. Um, you know, when it comes to, you know, diving in and, and adding, you know, detection logic, right? So rules, whether it be at the data lake layer or inside tools or something like that, all the way to, you know, if they were unfortunately impacted and had, and had become a victim of, of these campaigns, we would then help them, you know, uh, you know guide them and, and help them sort of uh, lead to remediation. So. so for your customers, I, I mean, there's like the old 
saying you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. But like for your, so I assume your customers are at different cyber hygiene levels, right? Some of them might just kind of begin their cyber program started. Some might be more advanced. Do you, do you, does your team provide recommendations uh, for customers to uh, improve their, I guess, telemetry collection or enrich their data or say like, hey, maybe you should get some Palo Altos or, or maybe you should install this appliance to get more metadata about your uh, network traffic and stuff like that. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a big part of the job, right? <clears throat> um, it, it would be unfortunate if all we did was just kind of say, hey, we detected something and then, you know, we're going to just follow a playbook, uh, you know, to the letter. I mean, of course, that's that's part of the of the subscription, right? But but additionally, like like I mentioned before, I, I really really love when when customers sign up with uh, with us and then they immediately have you know a large blue team behind them, you know, as a partner, and and we're able to come in and actually provide those recommendations and help them mature their program proactively. Nice. Are there any particular, I guess, security uh, events? And I'm, I'm, I'm not saying specifically within Cyteris, I, I mean like the greater uh, global cyber events that really, I guess, just rocked your mindset as like, wow, I can't believe this happened. And for me, it might've been like a Stuxnet, things like that. But is there any just particular ones that stand out to you? You know, this is a good question. And and I say it's a good question because, you know, as you can imagine, once you've been in this, in, in this space long enough, uh, you know, I, I don't know that a lot really does surprise you. I think one thing that is interesting that, you know, for me over the last, you know, several months, um, you know, the solar winds, uh, you know, supply chain attack, that one was notable. Um, I thought that was really interesting. And, you know, obviously we, um, you know, we, we were, we were, um, heavily focused on, you know, helping folks with that. Um, another one that was even more interesting to me, though, was the Log4j situation, right? Like, you know, that that was just so ubiquitous um, that, you know, it, it really took me by surprise. And I think we're going to continue to see more of this. But, um, you know, if, if I'm really to say, okay, you know, ransomware happens all the time, BEC happens all the time, all that kind of stuff. I think it's, you know, it's to the point where it's it's day in and day out at this point. But the solar winds and Log4j, those were really, really, really interesting and stood out to me over the last, say, year. So. Yeah, the Log4j, the the scanner CISO is recommending is dirt slow. <laughs> but yeah, the solar winds one. I'm guessing a lot of companies had stage one delivered, but it's like, okay, did stage two happen, right? It's pretty easy for stage one to execute. Um, so that was definitely an interesting one, um, you know, for for investigators, I think, um, because there is so much traffic going to these solar wind servers, uh, it just in and out. It is like it's a nightmare, right? Trying to figure out the like, lateral movement and stuff. Um, and then, you know, if it if a solar wind server reached out to stage one. Um, you know, they could have just been gathering information to figure out what company you are and then just left you alone. Right. Um, and but it's like, oh, maybe stage two happened. It's like and then it's like a forensic. Uh, you have to really get on the rabbit hole. So it's, it's definitely frustrating to investigate. Yeah. Not to mention the permissive nature and, and just the, you know, the tuning and all that kind of stuff that would would have been involved because SolarWinds was trusted throughout the environment. So that's to me, that was that's what was really scary. Yeah, definitely. And and all these make you wonder just what other like zero days uh, are out there that that like you know with Log4j they just hadn't been disclosed or what other what other software like SolarWinds is already compromised, right? 
Um, mm-hmm. And then everything you know is, is shattered. <laughs> <laughs> so why are you passionate about information security? There's a lot of ways to answer this question. I think the the number one thing that makes me passionate about info, InfoSec is, you know, security to me is not a problem that you just solve, right? I mean, it's a cat and mouse game, arms race, right? It's, it's just one of those things where, you know, from a risk management perspective, it really depends on what you're willing to accept. And then, you know, you prioritize trying to counter some of the opportunistic, you know, campaigns that are going on. Um, just because if you don't, I mean, you know, you're, you're just you're just a, yet another company who's going to become a victim, um, and and they really need to just raise raise their maturity level, you know, to to handle the ongoing attacks. But, I mean, you know, to that point, I really feel a lot of fulfillment when I'm helping a company, um, you know, like and, and and I say this, you know, with all the love and respect in the world, you know, I used to be an IT guy right before this. Um, and you know, of course, you'd, you'd go in, you'd solve solve a problem, you set up some infrastructure, it performs some you know some scheduled operations, and and it really sort of uh, you know digitally enables just about every aspect of business and our lives. But then at the same time, cybersecurity, of course, you know, w- with all of that enablement comes uh, folks that see opportunity to. Uh, take advantage and, uh, you know, extort money or sabotage infrastructure or whatever. And so those are, you know, like actually helping companies, um, you know, you know, sort of uh, be resilient and and, and be able to uh, combat and mitigate those threats uh, should they come in contact is, is like nothing I've ever felt. So. Definitely. That makes sense. And there's a lot of companies that need help out there for sure. Yeah. What do you think that the industry needs to focus on more, the, the cybersecurity industry in general? So yet another interesting question. I, I think one of the things that I wish would happen a lot more right now um, is routine exercises. And what I mean by that is I keep thinking about like – you know, there's there's these products out there that per, perform attack simulations. Take it, take it, your simulates or uh, Veroden. You know, these these sort of attack IQ, these things that go out and they they really test to validate that you have good detections in place and stuff like that. Um, I really wish that more of that was happening and and more of that was happening in such a way that that you know recommendations would come out of that, right? Um, so let's say for example that we take real incident data and and we really try to push um, you know, we really try to push people to go make the configuration changes that they need to really build security in. Cause you know, I, I forget uh, the last number that I read, but you know, there was some like, like a uh, 30 X, you know, uh, investment that somebody, a, a company needs to make to bolt on security controls, whereas they could just, you know, make some config changes, build in some, you know, some sort of, uh, best practices from a coding perspective and everything else, right? I, I really wish that we would focus on that. And I really wish that we would test ourselves a lot more often. So hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, I guess one of the things you mentioned is about, you know, putting the configuration changes and then throwing the code um, properly from the start. But I think, I don't know, my opinion is a lot of times companies like security is an afterthought until something bad happens right um and right. then like the security basically the security teams 
it's almost like we're janitors sometimes, right? We come in and we're just clean up, right? Um, you know, somebody's puked all over the cafeteria and we're cleaning it up. Um, and, and at that point, um, it's, yeah, it's putting in those best practices. It, it you know, it, it, it takes, it takes a while to get there. Right. So of course mm-hmm. we, we want to deploy as much, uh, expensive software as possible, uh, to, 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 to stop the bleeding. Right. But, um, yeah, I, I know I, for the tax simulation stuff. Are, so those tools you mentioned, is that different than standard vulnerability scanning? Yeah, like in my opinion, of course, you know, standard vulnerability scanning, of course, uh, carries some aspects of that. There's some light validation, right? Um, you know, there's, of course, various levels of scanning, right? You give it some privileged credentials and things like that. Um, and you're able to go and test business logic and other stuff. And I, and I think there, there, there's some aspects of that that are important, but then there's other aspects where you're actually going out and testing an attack scenario as opposed to looking for a vulnerability and then validating it, right? You mean like lateral movement and stuff? You mean like, right. like exploit and then move lateral? Okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, though, to your point, they, they go hand in hand. Right. And and th- this is what actually you know, this this is what makes me really uh, think that we should focus on this even more over time is, you know, folks usually have a vulnerability management program in place. Now, there's different levels of maturity there. We know that. But I don't really think that there's enough adoption of just true attack simulations. Sometimes it's referred to as automatic purple teaming. And I really wish that, that we would focus on that some more because, because you know, today the model typically is I'm going to hire a pen testing firm to come in and, you know, they're going to do everything that they can to achieve their objective. Um, give you a report. And the hope is that, you know, whether it's annual or, or, you know, quarterly, um, the hope is that you've made progress between those tests. Well, what, what, you know, what would the world be like today if almost every company performed these attack simulations every week? Right? That'd be something. I mean, yeah. It just seems like, seems like we would be making more progress. I can't tell you that without actually seeing the results, but, but it, it seems to me like we need to pick up the pace, and I guess that's my point. So. Definitely. I mean, sometimes like uh, it can be hard to get the funding right to to get a certain tool, and and you have to be on like the, the cusp of getting ransomware to actually uh, get proper protection. But um, yeah, once you're at a, a maturity level where you can be running those, and, and you have a CISO that can go to you know bat for you for your program, that's I'm all for it. One tool to mention for that, uh, Mitre released something called Caldera. I was actually running that uh, last week against a couple of different EDR products and. One of them, I'm not going to mention it uh, on the podcast, but it completely failed to detect it. Uh, the C2 agent for that, I let them know, and they're fixing it. But um, it's it's pretty sad. But Mitre's also done a couple of full simulations w- with a, a bunch of different EDR products for some APTs, and you can find that on their website. And they go through with screenshots of everything they did and exactly what those particular EDRs detected. And it's uh it's pretty thorough. It's good that. The miners doing that. I think it's helpful for the community. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, this just goes back to the point, right? Is, you know, there's market pressure and then there's, you know, there's the validation piece that that's a component of that, right? You know, to your point, like if, if this EDR product, you know, that that's unnamed, 
um, which is totally fair. But if this if this product cannot detect this simulated attack, then what confidence do we have to to detect a, you know an attack that has even more sophistication, where somebody might actually be sitting on a, a bypass or something like that? So right. I mean, to be fair, it didn't detect the download, installation, execution of the binary um, or the reverse tunnel. What, what it did detect was if I tried to run it in the background, like when I executed, if I did a no hop, it detected and it detected that and like it, uh, a tactic where it, it tried to delete bash history. Um, like basically the, the latter I got, it, found, it was picking up on, on TTPs. Got it. But um, still, you know, that initial reverse shell, it, it, it didn't stop. Where's another one stopped right away? But yeah. Got it. Cool. Okay. So um, what advice would you give to new CISOs? Uh, and information security? Well, the first piece of advice I always give new CISOs is be careful because this space will chew you up and spit you right back out if you're not careful. And and what I mean by that is, you know, there's so much to, to cover. There's so much to learn. And I see uh, new CISOs get in, you know into the space and then have you know have to immediately contact me and be like how am i going to build my team there's just too much work how how do i structure it right uh, what does it take to do 24/7 etc 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 and of course you know in, in in my business you know one of my answers obviously is of course you can outsource components of this because you're not ready it's going to take time you know to build train all that kind of stuff um, but i guess you know what I'll say is when you're walking into a new, uh, you know, company, uh, you know, and, and if you haven't done a lot of due diligence on, on the structure that's already in place, the tools that are there, um, you know, things like that, I, I would be I would be hesitant to say that you, you're going to have to you, 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 I guess let me just back up. You're not going to have a fun time if you don't know what you're walking into. Secondarily, and this is completely related, right? is go into every single situation with a heavy risk management focus, right? Um, you know, you can basically fortify a structure to the point where you've spent too much money on it because there's no asset inside, right? There's nothing of value. And I, I see too many times uh, when I'm advising different uh, security leaders or practitioners for that matter, you know, at, at various levels, um, where they're, they're asking, well, what should we do in this situation? You know, take solar winds or something like that, um, you know, or, or take a log for J. And, and the reality is that I don't know that you can 100% protect against that, but, you know, go ahead and, and, and do the things that, that you believe that you can do within uh, some economical boundaries, right? In other words, don't spend too much money on security and then, and then you know, basically uh, try to, try to make recommendations that would put you out of business. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think that when companies buy tools, they spend lots of money on stuff and they might think that they're getting protection, but really it's going to be six months or a year down the road until they implement that tool. Things like Zscaler and stuff like that, they take a long time to deploy, right? Um, and even then your, your deployment team might get it wrong um, just because of business reasons they may put in a thousand exceptions, right? And so those exceptions might be important. Or maybe your tool can't handle certificate pending, right? And the bad guys are using that to exfiltrate. I think it's definitely a combination of things. And 
knowing really where the focus on first can be tricky, but definitely, definitely hygiene is certainly uh, important. Mm-hmm. Yep. What's some of the best advice you've received? I think what we've just been talking about really is, you know, is some of the best advice I've received. Again, you know, um, security is not a problem that can be solved, right? So, so don't get disappointed if it seems like you're not making any progress, because oftentimes that's actually not the case. It's just you're you're combating against, you know, against a different adversary, right? Um, I'll give you an example. You know, in, in my early days, of course, I talked about you know cleaning viruses and things that are just more nuisance, right? And then uh, you know I've I've worked at a previous company who was targeted by a ha- you know a hacktivist group, and you know that was all new to me, right? Because I was I was used to you know trying to detect you know data that was being exfiltrated over the network, or you know I was I was worried about uh, different you know sort of viruses at the time or, or things like worms that spread themselves around the network and causing havoc. Uh, but then, you know, once I started um, learning that there was somebody behind the keyboard, of course, one of my, one of my really good friends, you know, basically told me, Hey, look, you know, it's, you're, you're facing something that you've never faced before. And that doesn't mean that, <clears throat> that, um, that you can't overcome it. That doesn't mean that, um, you know that that it's hopeless, and it doesn't mean that you're not you're not making progress. It just what it does mean is that you're detecting new things and you're learning to to basically face those opponents, right? Um, I'll never forget the time that I actually experienced, you know, uh, an incident, and I, I won't go into details, obviously, but you know, I I came up into contact with one of one of my first um, espionage groups, right? Really sophisticated, uh, you know, one of those situations where I just it felt hopeless, but then you know, after all of the, after the incident was complete, after all the containment and everything else, and and the path forward that we laid out as a company, I felt a lot stronger, and and it you know. I feel like there's a big snowball effect. So I really thank my buddy um, at the time who, who kept telling me about this and, you know, giving me the advice that, you know, these folks that, you know, they, they just work business hours, right? Like, so, you know, some of these guys are working nine to five in their time zone and they have different, um, you know, they have different uh, keyboard layouts and everything else, right? It's just, you know, that you're, you're, you're facing somebody instead of, you know, dealing with a, like a technology problem, if that makes sense. So, yeah, that definitely makes sense. Yep. What are some of your passion projects? Well, I work a lot, right? Um, <laughs> sometimes, you know, I, I'd like to, I'd like to think that it's too much, um, but I, I work a lot, and and you know the 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 company that that we've been building over the last several years uh, that's that's really been my passion project, obviously. Um, you know, I, I don't know that that I turn it off very often unless it, you know, it comes down to some of the basics like, you know, leveraging, um, you know, various amenities in my building, going out and having fun with my friends, et cetera. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I, I do like to make sure that, you know, I, I toy with, uh, and, and this is going to sound silly, but I've got a lot of screen real estate at home. Right. So I've got what what would effectively be 10, 27 inch monitors that sit in front of me all the time. Um, So, you know, I want to make sure that I have a setup that's that's really easy to use. There's there's plenty of real estate. There's you know, there's probably like uh, over a terabyte of RAM sitting in my office right now. Um, So, 
you know, all this to say, you know, that, that, you know, that, that was a bit of a project to me because I don't want to get slowed down. Like I want to, I want to be able to continue my work and everything that comes along with it. I'm very passionate about. Is that so. those 10 screens, is that all metrics or, or what do you, I mean, I don't know if you the detail, but I'm curious, like 10 screens, is that it's like different windows or is it like metrics and stuff and, and that kind of stuff or what? Oh, you mean the things that are actually on yeah. the screens? Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, so a couple of them are actual ultra wides, and it's funny. There's there's multiple people out there that that you know we that come in contact with with me when I when I'm talking about these screens, and then they go buy their first 49 inch ultra wide, right? They're like, oh my god, this thing's amazing, you know. But it takes a lot of t- it takes a lot of effort to get to that point and pull the trigger. Um, but I've got a couple of of ultra wides that are stacked ver- uh, vertically that I I leverage. Um, there's lots of different windows on those, and then there's other screens that are um, that are uh, you know 4, 4K 27 inch monitors that that I you know I do put dashboards on. <clears throat> I do have one of the screens um, you know uh, like you know that that I play my Xbox on for example whenever I'm uh, you know trying to you know unwind a bit. Um, and then I've got some other screens that are for personal use, right? I might be playing some, you know, a TV episode. I, you know, I'm, I may have like a, a news feed going on, things like that. So, yep. Makes sense. What are the unique threats MSSPs and MDRs face from threat actors? To me, the most unique threats, I say this meaning they're unique to, to MSSPs, not necessarily unique to companies, but they're unique in that they, they could be very, very damaging are, you know, ransomware, um, you know, that, that can bring MSSPs to a, a serious halt, right? Meaning, you know, we, we, we provide services for our customers on digital assets all the time, all day long. So, you know, that, that to me is a really big deal. Of course, you know, it could be argued that everybody, you know, can experience this and there could be even more business disruption elsewhere. I, I, th- I think at the end of the day, what I'm saying is it, it would bring this business to a halt, right? Any MSSPs that experience that. And to that point, uh, you know, the, the business dis- disruption that an MSSP can, can experience, um, you know, from like the pandemic, for example, for those that, that, that primarily relied on premises, you know, that, that kind of stuff obviously, uh, was a big deal, right. You know, for our company, it wasn't, it really wasn't a big deal. We were cloud first, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, we're, we, we, we largely don't have multi-tenant infrastructure and stuff like that. And so, um, you know, we were able to work through that, but for other MSSPs that, you, you know, I've, I've got some peers in, in the community, you know, they were, they were dealing with that pretty hot and heavy. So hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Would you be able to tell me about any true positive security incidents you were involved with? Yeah, this one's a tough one to answer, right? I can tell you, remember, I just I sort of alluded to an incident that I was dealing with earlier on in the podcast in a previous life. Um, and I'll remember this incident, you know, f- for the rest of my time. I, I still remember, you know, we, basically I, I, I came in contact with a, an espionage group, right? Alleged, right? But um, all the threat intelligence uh, pointed in one direction. Um, everybody, you know, had told me based on their observations and their experience, this particular, this particular behavior was attributed to a group and, and this, these were their motives and everything else. Um, one interesting thing about this that stands out over any other security incident that I faced in my career <clears throat> was 
and, and again, I've, I've experienced it over and over again, but this was the first time that I had ever seen a toolkit um, that, that, you know, was very similar to like, you know, um, Metasploit or something like that. And, and I, I can even remember at first glance, and this, this is early on in, in my analysis days, I can remember at first glance, I looked at that toolkit and I thought, man, like that, you know, somebody must be doing a pen test or something. But then, <laughs> you know, after after extracting the toolkit, it was you know the the commands and the things that 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 you could do with the tool. You know, one of my one of my buddies at the time was able to go in and basically profile it and and reverse engineer it and tell us you know what you could do with the tool. And, and then it immediately became uh, evident to me that it was not this like you know exhaustive list of things that you could do like a universal sort of Swiss Army, Army knife like toolkit. It was very specialized and the code blocks in it had a different, you know, let, let's just say some of the keywords were, were foreign language and, you know, related and things like that. And that really got me going. Um, th- like that one incident, which, which, you know, lasted several weeks. Um, but that one incident was what really, you know, kind of got me really interested in doing threat intelligence and things like that. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll, like I said, I'll just, I'll never forget it. So. That's super interesting. So espionage, is that like intellectual property theft? Yeah, that's correct. Yep. Oh, all right. Interesting. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I came across PowerShell Empire uh, in, in, <laughs> in the wild in previous life. And it's really weird. Like I'm looking at like, like, why is this machine calling like news.php? And it was just like over and over again. I'm like, this machine keeps calling these three PHP files. And like, so I just did some Googling. And if you like concatenated the search with like uh, an and operator for the three PHP files, sure enough, and GitHub PowerShell Empire comes up and I'm like, oh crap. <laughs> um, right. And then once I'm looking like what I can do and stuff, and I'm like, oh, what's it doing on my network? <laughs> yeah. Um, what's so, yeah. it doing? Yeah. How did it get here? Oh crap. Yeah. <laughs> now that it's here, you know, <laughs> you start to ask yourself all kinds of questions, right? Again, going back to the my previous comment, who's behind the keyboard, right? Right. So just a totally different experience. Yeah. And so. then it's like, who's patient zero, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So. so as far as non-digital stuff, I mean, I guess maybe digital. Um, for for books, are there any books that had a, a big impact on your life or, or changed the way you thought about things or did things? Absolutely. I mean, there's there's plenty of them. Um, but I this is where I'll take uh, you know the opportunity and shout out um, the book uh, Measuring and Managing uh, Information Security Risk. Um, you know, the, if if you ever follow the Risk Lens guys, right? They the, you know Jack Jones. Um, you know that. Basically, they they they've got the uh, defined and maintained this this you know framework, if you if you will, called the factorial analysis of information risk, and it really helps um, folks like myself that come from a practitioner background start to really understand how to uh, try to go through and quantify risk, and and then of course you know be able to translate it and present it to security leaders and business leaders that that may not understand all the various tactical details and things like that. And like it, it, of all the books that I've read in the last few years, that's one of the ones that left the 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 longest standing uh, impact, if that makes sense. So, Got it. And if you string all those together into an acronym, that's FAIR, right? Correct. Got it. 
Yeah, I, I keep I keep hearing about about uh, the, the fair risk management framework. So I, I assume a lot of being a CISO is being able to talk to like the executive team uh, about risk and explain the risk to them in business terms. And CISOs that are poor at that have trouble getting funding. Um, is that what you've seen or? Yeah, that's absolutely what I've seen. Right. I mean, you know, some of the stuff's super basic, right? You, you got to have, you know, sensors at various points in your network. But if, if companies don't understand, you know, that, um, like, for example, that you need an EDR today, then, then it sounds to me like the narrative needs to be, you know, tailored towards the folks that are effectively writing the checks, making the investment, right? And and we see this, you know, all the time where somebody's like, hey, I, I you know, I, I, t- I finally get it, right? Like, you know, the the a modern EDR, you know, amongst a handful of, of really capable companies, it's it's able to to cover, you know, you know, over 80% of, of the MITRE attack techniques, you know, at least at a high level. I mean, obviously there's work that needs to go into it, but it gives you the telemetry to be helpful and all that kind of stuff. So we know we need it, but, you know, help me understand how to get there. And, and so like, we, like I, I get, I get questions uh, at least weekly, you know, on, on how, how do you go and translate this to the business? You know, why, why do I need to have a data lake that's fast? You know, things like that. So. Got it. So huh, I think this goes right into my next question. So what, what things are you needed to have an efficient and effective incident response team and threat hunting team? Yeah, this is great. I mean, so I, I think I think there's a lot of components. You know, one, when we're talking about incident response experience, right? And again, you can partner with somebody to get that experience um, or you can hire internally. Oftentimes, I recommend that there's a combination, right? Um, because, you know, you, you definitely want to have somebody internal that understands how to navigate the business. They understand who are the system owners, you know, they've, they've got a rapport within the business to try to get things done. Um, you know, they're able to disseminate threat intelligence information appropriately. Those kinds of things, you know, I think are important. And I think most companies are doing that. Um, the, uh, you know, back to your point towards the beginning, you know, there's varying levels of maturity on either side. But, um, you know, it's it's definitely something that's, you know, that, that you want to do. Um, having having a sock today, um, you know, I, and I'll speak, obviously, you know, uh, I'm biased a little bit, but having a sock to help with incident response is absolutely critical right and especially from a hunting perspective too but it's absolutely critical you know so that folks can get sleep they they can you know uh, establish you know a, a procedure that needs to be done over a period of time because you know a threat actor once once you feel like you've mitigated you know a, a, a particular set of activity during an incident uh, the assumption always should be that they're not necessarily gone and you have to keep monitoring for a period of time right and so having having that 24 by 7 staffing ready to go and, and oftentimes already there um, is is really really critical. And and what why this is a problem for most companies today is it's a large expense, right? If you try to build your own sock today, you're talking millions of dollars, <clears throat> and that's just for a company of average size. And so you know this this is what you know you asked why am I why am I passionate about this you know what what's why why what drives me you know having a capability that you know that can help lots of people 
is, you know, is something that's, that's very fulfilling to me from a hunting perspective. I think it's, I think it's definitely important to ensure that you can see as much as possible. Right. And when I sit, when I say that, I mean, you know, you've got to have a, a, a lot of telemetry, you know, and, and when I say telemetry, I mean raw logs, right? Not just an endpoint agent or a firewall or something that is just giving you, uh, uh, you know, detections based off of a rule. You need to have raw transactions. So, you know, having a good, loud, noisy NTA, having a having a good EDR with, you know, like Sentinel-1's deep visibility or CrowdStrike's, at, you know, FDR, where you're getting the full feed, every registry key change, every file change, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That stuff is critical just as step one. And then step two, there's, you know, there's a... a a model uh, called the Tahiti model that's more sort of like hypothesis based. If you want to try to drive proactive threat hunting into your environment, I really encourage folks to check it out. Um, but the reality is, you know, going back to the attack simulation sort of methodology, you know, it's important to have hunters actually going in and being able to ask questions against their data sets to try to find a particular technique. Uh, and and once they find it, you know, then then they've got to ask a lot more questions after that. So that drives things like investments and in faster data lakes and stuff like that. So hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, that does. I want to touch on something you said when you eradicate a a threat actor and not assuming that they're that they're gone, right? So monitoring afterwards. Is there other stuff that can be done, like canaries and things like that? To maybe just like, or, or like some honeypots, just like kind of put some stuff out there to maybe catch them in the act when you think they're gone? I am very glad that you brought this up. This is a great call out. Um, yes, there are, you know, the, the, the space, you know, as has, has morphed into what's called the deception space, right? Um, uh, you use the term honeypot, so you know I, I can totally appreciate that because back in the day, that's what we called them, right? We just basically, you know, stood up these, um, I, whether they be actual systems or uh, you know a program that was designed to simulate or I'm uh, sorry, emulate a system, um, like fake to be a printer or fake to to be a, like an old box, like a Windows NT box or something that's attractive to a you know to a threat actor. Um, you know, I, I personally believe it's critical and it's inexpensive to do this, um, you know, to put uh, effectively, you know, sensors that, that are that are meant to deceive those that are, that have malintent. Um, one thing I will say is you got to be careful with where you place them. Right. So because I've, I've seen companies, for example, try to put honeypots, if you will, or, or sensors out like in their DMZ and then expose it to the internet to try to capture something. And there's just so much internet radiation that it's not useful. Um, but, you know, deploying tokens that that claim to be, you know, executive pay information in a file share, right? So, you know, s s when you find it, you should kind of raise your hand and say you found it instead of double clicking on it to go look at the information, right? Like those kinds of things are helpful to find not only insiders, but, but bad actors. And then, and then of course the system personas, right. Are, are, are interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I would think also for like espionage situations, right. Um, I think there was like a, a situation with DuPont where like the FBI got involved. There was like a talk like Infraguard and, you know, some guy was stealing some secret paint recipe. Right. Uh, and they ended up catching him before like he left the country. But, um, you know, if you could have on a file share, like, you know, 
paint recipe, you know, that PDF, it could be a nice juicy thing, right? Yep. For someone who's going to commit espionage to try to grab, or if you think about like the Snowden situation, right? I mean, with that, you're probably getting more to a um, behavioral type thing, like what percentage of files to download, you know, is normal in my environment for you know any given employee? Is it, you know, 10 terabytes? No, it's not, <laughs> right? It's on the alarm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's varying levels of solutions out there, right? I mean, it goes from from your your cheaper solutions like your open source solutions, or even like Thinkst uh, that you know that you can get canaries for very low uh, low investment, all the way up to your you know your elusives and your tivos, right? Um, so yeah, it's definitely a cool strategy. I I, I support it big time, um, but it's a different way of thinking, right? Instead of just saying hey. You know, I want to put a, a control in place to prevent something uh, or to allow me to mitigate when something's happening. Um, it's it's trying to pretend to be something else. And I think some folks, um, you know, have have some issues with that. Right. It's just it's hard to, to think, you know, in, in a deceiving way. And I can totally understand that. Um, but but at the same time, it's it's you know it's a very effective tool to find stuff you know especially if if they're if a threat actor is sophisticated enough to to evade your current controls so there's a super interesting tool i saw about five or six years ago i saw a demo and what it did was if you queried active directory and you were like a, a user that was not approved to be doing that it would return false data it would like make up computer names based on your existing computer names, it would make up usernames. Um, and so it was super easy to see if somebody was trying to do bad stuff because normal users, normal like admins would never talk to those computer names and usernames because they didn't exist. Um, it would it would basically like register a DLL on your system or whatever and just kind of just, just change stuff. It was like magic. It was really cool. Mm -hmm. Nice, yeah. So what are the most common attacks companies are failing to stop? BEC and ransomware, no question. Yeah, it's super sad that that uh, it's you know it's it's a billion dollar a year problem and it's it's just not going away. And I think a lot of companies are just learning the hard way, right? They they're spending so much effort to grow big, and why worry about something that's never happened to me, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, what what's interesting about these problems, right, is. For one, we're not talking about custom malicious payloads anymore. We're talking about privileged access and doing things an IT person could do, which which brings which brings a whole different level of thinking if you if you think about from an insider threat perspective, right? I mean, this can be done by someone who has privileged access. Uh, typically, it's an outsider, and 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 both of these situations uh, primarily are driving. Uh, you know, extorting money or, or, or stealing money, right? Which, I mean, arguably everything could be about money. But, but what, what I mean is, like, there are a lot of companies out there in my mind, based on my interviews that I've had with folks, you know, that just thought, you know, I'm not that interesting, right? Like, I'm just, like, I, I shouldn't really be a big target because who would really want to attack me? Who would really want what I have? And for a while, right, you, you've got the folks, like, like I mentioned, hacktivism before where they're trying to tarnish your reputation, right? So then, you know, a company would say, I'm not really that interesting, right? So, you know, I, you know so I'm, I'm not really going to be worried about that. It could happen, but I'm not really going to worry about it. And then it's like, 
you know, you hear about these threats where nation state or, or alleged nation state groups are involved, right? Where they're either performing espionage or something, something similar. And, and, you know, companies will say the same thing. Like, you know, I'm just, I'm just not really that interesting. Right. So, so why would somebody want to attack me? And then you take this opportunistic approach and say, well, I mean, companies are basically going and brokering credentials on the dark web, right? Gaining initial access and holding your files for ransom. It doesn't matter how interesting you are. I mean, of course, there's aspects of that. Like, I really feel for supply chain folks, you know, logistics companies, uh, you know, th those guys that are super vulnerable if, if their infrastructure is, um, is uh, disrupted at any point in time. Um, especially given the way that the, you know, that we are like the way the world is right now. But, um, but at the end of the day, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's changing the game because companies can no longer, at least in my mind, uh, really sit there and say, I'm not that interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, it's definitely true. Cause it's like, well, like your company that, Let's say you make wood pulp or something, right? That's pretty boring. But your internet footprint, that could be extremely interesting, right? Um, if you have VPN gateways, things like that. So it kind of goes into like the whole Octobreach thing, right? It was the parent company of an acquisition was running support for some Octa customers. They had a VPN gateway. Um, and I checked out the VPN gateways that that particular company had. It was like, it's like some Cisco product runs Java. There's, there was like, you know, some RCEs from like 10 years ago on it. But from what I was reading that that, that particular uh, entry method was valid credentials, right? And, you know, Lapsus is, is known for credential stuffing, you know, employee personal accounts and thinking like, oh, it's privacy and password for their corporate account. And then using dual factor push bombing, right? Um, if you keep getting a push going to your phone, like from your, from your own location, Say you know use a VPN proxy. Um, a lot, a lot. Of, you know, unfortunately, a lot of employees are just going to hit accept and they could go away, right? Um, so I would, a word of warning: never, never uh, allow push from an unknown device uh, for second factor, right? <laughs> but um, right. yeah, it just getting that initial access has been the the, the bar has really been lowered, right? Uh, in, in a lot of cases, just some some of the new creative ways folks are attacking. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So, I mean, speaking of, you know, the third-party services, right, like Okta um, or SolarWinds, and you know, there's the WatchGuard firewalls uh, recently, right, uh, that the Russian government are exploiting instead of botnet with. What are some things that companies can do to reduce risk in these types of situations, both before and after event? Both before an event and after event. So before, like, they even know about a compromise or before it's compromised, and, you know, also after, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot to that, right? I mean, that's that's one of the reasons that you know we're in business, um, you know, and, and I say that meaning security practitioners, right? That's that's one of the reasons that we're here. Um, what I can say is some immediate steps that <clears throat> that companies can take um, to reduce their risk is you know really really focus on phishing, and I mean every aspect of it, 
And, and of course, you know, I'm, I'm saying this and I'm sure some of your listeners are, are laughing. They're like, fishing has been a problem ever since day one. Well, it's not gone away. Um, but, you know, of course, there's some best practices out there, right, where you're going in and you're training users to report, you know, abuse. Um, you're triaging those, performing your browser blocking, trying to go get, you know, uh, infrastructure taken down. Um, there's the, the various pre- preventive uh, mechanisms, DMARC, DKIM, you know, having a, a good, solid, um, you know, email gateway that actually has a good reputation and has proven to be effective, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, I think all those things are really important, um, you know, and then of course, beyond phishing, <clears throat> there are several things today that I would say people need to, to fix right now. One of the things that we're seeing, and, and I'm still surprised that I see it, and, and I think it largely is that somebody just forgets that they poked a hole in the firewall or something, but if you're exposing RDP directly to the internet, it's it's going to be a matter of hours before somebody's trying to exploit it. Um, so now this brings me to my next point. Whatever whatever you know direct access that that system has to the rest of your network makes things more problematic. Oftentimes, if somebody's exposing RDP directly to the internet, it's likely that that system has unfettered access to various parts of the network that you would not want a threat actor to have access to. So that's a big deal. So so I guess long story short, if you're ever seeing RDP exposed to the internet, get it shut off, right? Um, <clears throat> another thing that we're seeing very, very, very commonly, VPN endpoint or VPN concentrator exploitation, right? Um, you know, of course, this this goes hand in hand with just initial access. You know, like the, those those hard. You know, back to the phishing point, the credentials that are harvested, brokered, etc. Right. You know that 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 obviously is a life cycle um, in the criminal underground that um, that that needs to be understood by everybody, so that you know they do things like making sure that they deploy MFA, teach people about push bombing and all that kind of stuff. But don't forget that your VPN concentrators. Uh, you know, also present a risk if not managed appropriately. And what I've been telling people, um, you know, and, and what we heard from from various folks is like whenever the pandemic really started and folks were forced to work from home and VPN concentrators were expanded, you know, capacity expansion, all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, there was a lot of IT backlog to getting everybody to work from home. Uh, you know, to me, the, the, the criminal actors, you know, took uh, leveraged that opportunity, Right. And so, you know, ever since then, I've seen, you know, just uh, it, it seems like you know, time and time and time again, there's yet another sort of perimeter device that's being exploited. Right. Successfully. And these are, you know, large scale campaigns um, and that kind of stuff. So whenever there's a patch that comes out or there's some sort of configuration change that, that helps you uh, either remediate the, the flaw or, or it, you know, helps you mitigate the threat, treat it almost like an emergency change, right? I've, I've heard plenty of people just tell me the story, like, you know, when we talk to them and it's like, Hey man, you know, your, your Fortinet, you know, was out on the web or, or your, your Palo Alto was out on the web and it's, it's sitting on several, you know, code cycles behind, right? Like the, like the, the, the version drift is pretty significant here. And the story always is, man, I'm just afraid if I take that down, there's going to be significant business disruption. And then, you know, the answer of course that I give always, which, you know, I think everybody else here can agree with is, well, but, but if, if you become a victim, 
of one of these, you know, these ransomware groups that that leverages this to gain initial access into your environment, the business impact can be significant. So, you know, from my perspective, you, you know, actually having con- more control over that situation is is the outcome that you want. Not to mention the fact that depending on the business size and value and all that kind of stuff, you know, you could be paying millions of dollars uh, in response and in ransom. So, um, so yeah, you know, that's, that's another thing to really consider. And then, like I mentioned before, if you're not using a good modern EDR today, do it immediately. I know it seems expensive. I know sometimes it seems like it's unnecessary, but there's so much visibility that's to be gained with that deep visibility uh, aspect of like your crowd strikes or your Sentinel ones or your carbon blacks. And so if you're not doing, you know, that it, like I, I consider it so basic that you need to do that. I mean, think about it, right? The internet is the network, you know, your entry points into various systems now in the platform, in the platform economy that we live in today are your identity. So if you don't have a good identity and access management program, definitely need to move forward with that, right? Mature that as much as possible. Maintain visibility on the endpoint. Focus on phishing. And then those those two perimeter aspects that I mentioned about RDP and, and VPN concentrators, keep tight control over that. So I said a lot. I'll, I'll go ahead and pause because yeah. I'm sure there's many more things to talk about. But, you know, as you can tell, I'm very passionate about it. No, this. I have a lot to say about this. So especially the VPN concentrators. So I, I guess some other stuff I've seen that companies can do is have a, have a certificate on each machine, right? And you need that certificate to be able to authenticate to the VPN. But there's also some cheap stuff you can do, right? Like with Cisco VPNs, you can have a script that executes upon upon a successful authentication that will check for registry key, will check for your the EDR process, right? That your that your company uh, if your company's EDR program has, has should have a service running. You can check for that service, um, and if that stuff's not there, it should just disconnect the client, right? Um, th- that's that's cheap. It's an easy win, but also there are ways to not expose your VPN concentrator to the general internet. <laughs> um, and I, I wish companies would look at that more. There's there's um, something called single packet authentication. Um, it's kind of like the evolution of port knocking, but um, it has to do with something that's already on your device, and you send a special packet, mm-hmm. um, and if the first packet is not that special packet, then it's just a black hole, right? And so people won't even know you, know your concentrator is there. Um, so that's, I guess it could get a little tricky um, if you're trying to get somebody back onto the network, right? Like uh, a, a a particular uh, employee or something, and, but the help desk would have to be trained for those situations. But um, aside from that, the speaking of help desk, right? There's, you, you really have to have training for your help desk employees to make sure that they're not going to get social engineered to resetting passwords or resetting MFA factors, right? Uh, that's another way identity can be uh, you know, overwritten, right? But um, even if like, let's say, let's say you use Okta and let's say you're one of the 300 or so companies that were part of the, the breach, right? Well, then they could reset passwords. The bad guys could reset passwords and multi-factor off. So it's like, okay, do I need to start tying? <laughs> like, do do we need to have like multiple MFAs, which it almost sounds laughable, right? And like a nightmare. But I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering your thoughts are on that. Like if you, if like, is there another hoop that we should make people go through or like a, a way we can do it seamlessly with, a, I think uh, Cloudflare has something that, that that's really seamless um, for an, like an extra layer of authentication. What are your thoughts on that? 
I mean, I like it. I definitely like it in theory. Um, I think the challenges that you laid out are, are going to, are you know, make it make people hesitant to adopt, right? Like that's you know, that's really my thought around it. If that makes sense. Yeah. So, so some of it's uh, a little bit conceptual, but I, I did actually meet um, the the CISO of one of, of a certain company, and they were an MSSP. And their and their VPN, I was telling them, I was like, yeah, I like, I was like, I, like, I was scanning your infrastructure before I came in for the job interview, and this firewall, it just disappeared. I'm like, it was there one minute and it was gone the next. And he's like, oh yeah, we use single pack. He's like, we use single packet <laughs> authentication. And I was like, holy shit, <laughs> you're the first company I've heard of using that, you know? But uh, it was nice. really cool to, to, to see that they were doing that. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I it's 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 like one of those things, right? That there's there's a scale, I guess. Um, you know, to how obscure uh, your your infrastructure and your communication patterns can be. Um, so, you know, it's I, I, I do like the idea a lot in, in theory. I think, I, I just think, yeah, like to your point, it's going to, you have to start training people, you know, how to support it and all that kind of stuff. And, and like, if there's one thing I know, if, if there's going to be all this, this special treatment and, and, and complications to supporting something, then usually it's going to prevent it from being adopted. So. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. You'd have, you'd have to have some very good run books, right? Um, and you, you'd have to do lots yeah. and lots of testing. Um, but in theory, it can yeah. be done. Uh, but I guess kind of going back to what you were talking about, the uh, business email compromise and the ransom, right? Um, I think that mm -hmm. the government finally may be taking steps uh, um, to address some of this for some sectors. There's the Strengthening American Cybersecurity Act of 2022 which will require critical infrastructure as defined in Presidential Directive 21 uh, to report ransomware payments within 24 hours. So if you have to report a ransomware payment in 24 hours and you are part of this critical infrastructure, um, this is something that would hopefully make your company want to get like a good EDR to prevent ransomware, right? Because there's a lot of companies out of shame, you know, they, they don't announce that they got ransomware, right? But this is kind of came out of the reaction to the Colonial Pipeline incident. This will cover a, a lot of companies, you know, financial sector, things like that, that you might not typically think of critical infrastructure. And so I think the government's going to be expand, expanding the reach for some of this reporting, which hopefully will lead to companies needing to install better protection. What, what are your thoughts on that? You think they're going far enough? You think that's a good idea or? I, th I think we have yet to see the the impact of this, right? Um, I, I'm I'm a fan of of trying to you know uh, incentivize you know companies, individuals to do things as opposed to you know setting guidelines or, or you know e even you know uh, passing another act and 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 just assuming that that it's going to make a, a difference, you know. And, and I say that you know just, just simply because. Again, if, if a tool or, or let's say there's many security controls that we could put in place today that weren't crazy expensive and, you know, they're, they're really easy to deploy and easy to adopt and stuff like that. Um, and, and we didn't have a lot of pushback with folks that had to support it. I, I, I would I would argue that we, we would probably be in a better spot. But, um, you know, at the end of the day. Um, you know, companies are going to be able to make their, their own choices as they should. Um, and, and we'll see, we'll see what happens. There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, feelings about this that are, 
that are you know polarized. Um, and so I'm I'm interested to see what the what the impact's going to be and and to see if it's actually going to make a difference. So yeah, you know I just listening to you talk about this, it, I kind of had an idea. I don't know if it's stupid or not, but if you think about like car insurance, right? Like car insurance is not that expensive, right? But when I get in an accident, you know, I might have to pay a deductible or something like that, right? Um, and it made my insurance goes up. It'd be interesting if like the EDRs took a model where like they make it like really cheap. And then the more your users get into trouble, click on malicious links and stuff, it might start jacking up the price a little bit, right? Are you, are you, you know, if there's going to be like a ransomware situation or something, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering if there could be a model like that where, well, one, the companies would not, shouldn't be abusing it, right? But if there's a way to like, I don't know, kind of show you how much is the product's doing and stuff like that. But um, if there's no bad guys on the network or your company's not clicking emails or whatever that are bad, you know, the alerts wouldn't be going off. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it goes back to, the again, the idea of, of aligned incentives, you know, so. Is there uh, anything that else you like you would like to share about your experience uh, in the information security industry? I mean, it's been life-changing in a lot of ways. Uh, so, so for anybody that's listening, um, you know, I, I've heard various um, perspectives. You know, all, all I think are are valid. Uh, you know, but but one of the things that pains me the most is <clears throat> is hearing that people say, "Don't get in, don't get into infosec." Yeah. You know, you're going to be asked to work work crazy hours. You know, you're you're you know you're you're gonna you're gonna basically uh, be blamed for everything and all that kind of stuff. And sure, I, I get that, right? I understand that argument for some people that are put in situations that are unfortunate. But what I will say is that um, once you get into the groove and, and you really start, um, you know, uh, having, uh, you know, proficiency in various domains of study and all that kinds of stuff, um, and you, you get your feet under you, like it's, it's, it's a very fulfilling career path. Um, it's definitely, definitely a valuable space. You know, you're helping people, you know, uh, with, with, again, uh, you know, uh, coming into contact with various enemies. Um, and so it's, it's, to me, it's great. I, I, I'll never look back. Uh, you know, I, like I said, I used to be in it, I switched to cybersecurity and I, I will, I will never look back. I love it. And I encourage everybody else to just not give up and keep going. Right. It takes, it takes a couple of really solid, hardworking years, and arguably it, it never stops. But but it, it definitely gets easier, right? Because you start to understand the fundamentals, you start to get exposed to various attacks, and you start to become very fluent in 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 what's happening, and and you're able to keep up a lot easier. So hopefully that helps your 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 listeners here if if they're questioning whether or not they want to remain in. in yeah, Facebook. absolutely. I- I totally agree. I think that we certainly need more people in InfoSec. And what's great about this industry is if you ask the question, people will help you. They really want to help you. So whether it's, I don't understand like why this IP address is showing up in the log or not understanding why an alert triggered, whatever it is, just ask and someone will help you along the way and don't get discouraged. And if you hear, you know, there are some um, I don't know if you want to call them death marches, but um, sometimes, you know, a situation happens and it might be all hands on deck, right? And it it might be a long night, but that should be maybe like 
a once in a year situation or once in a two year situation on a normal company. Um, if you're finding that to be every other week or every week, then you you, sh- you might need to start looking for another job or push back and be like, hey, manager, why aren't you rotating people um, that are responding to this event? You can't have everybody on for 24 hours. You need to rotate your staff, right? And being able to speak truth to upper management, um, it kind of comes with uh, just maturing in your career and knowing when to do that. You knowing when to tell your boss, like, hey, I've had enough for now, or I'm not going to be as effective um, if you have me working for 16 hours, you know, whatever. Um, and so I think that sometimes younger employees just don't know that they can do that, that they can push back on that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, thank you for taking the time to be here today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, I, I always appreciate the opportunity and, uh, you know, it's a good discussion. So, um, and always, always good to, to chat with you too, sir. So definitely. Thank you. Have a good one. If you liked the episode today and would like to help support us, please hit subscribe, drop us a review or share with your friends.